Hello and welcome back to a long-awaited episode to Untangle. I've been recovering from COVID since last Sunday, so hence why there have been a marked delay on the releasing of episodes. I'm happy to announce that I've been evaluating the statistics through this podcast, and we have recorded over 87 streams from many different listeners from all over the world. Thank you everybody as well for whoever provided me support and feedback. We still go a long way into improving this podcast. And thanks whoever has already been subscribed to this podcast and welcome to anyone that is newly subscribed. Now, before we start, significantly we need to establish that stigma is quite a complicated and vast topic that can be analyzed from multiple angles. Therefore, we'll try to divide this complicated topic into multiple episodes. But this particular topic will be introduced in this podcast, and we're going to focus on a more generalistic approach from a worldwide but also national perspective. Without any further ado, let's untangle stigma, the first part. Now, You might wonder what is stigma? Well, stigma is a noun that is utilized to attach shame, prejudice and discrimination to a particular topic. In a topic of focus, essentially we're evaluating how stigma is attaching mental health. And this is quite significant because mental health to this day and age is still linked with stigma. Individuals with living experience of mental illness experience stigma during their life and sometimes almost as a daily basis. Now, how come stigma present in society? And it presents itself in multiple avenues. Public stigma, for instance, involves the negative or discriminatory attributes that others put into someone that has a mental illness. Moving forward, individuals with self-stigma refer to themselves to negative attitudes and they include internalized shame that they have about their own condition. Now, moving along to institutional stigma, this is a more systemic problem that involves policies of government and private organizations that essentially, sometimes intentionally or unintentionally, limits the opportunities of individuals with mental illness. Now that we have an understanding of how public self-stigma and institutional stigma develops, for example, there are some ideas, stereotypical ideas that people have out there. And one of them is that people with mental illness are dangerous, incompetent, and to blame for their disorder. Another example is when organizations lower the funding on mental illness research, or they have fewer mental health services available when compared to other areas. Now, moving along, in my clinical experiences, it's quite interesting to see because these stigmatizing discriminatory views of someone sometimes presents itself during junior clinicians' initial experience. And they already inherit these views from society. And having to essentially see them transform from the systematizing use to a more recovery-orientated practice always brings me joy. And 
one of the reasons why we're talking about this in this podcast. But why does stigma present itself in society, even to this day and age? Well, this is due to a variety of reasons. A majority of this is simply a misunderstanding of mental health conditions. We can list a few, and as we discussed before, society plays an important part into developing stigmatizing views with, towards people with mental illness. And this is still truth. An Australian study has found that the news continue to have a significant factor in influencing these stigmatizing discriminatory views of mental illness because often when concerns are raised about stigma, they are often dismissed and avoided as they feel that this will cause in society a lot of a reaction or might be quite difficult to talk about. Moving along the education area, edu education appears to also have sometimes stigmatizing views towards people. For instance, the study highlighted that there was a particular student that ended up going to hospital for mental health services and the counsellor from the student support services was not supportive, which did not consider the special consideration that the student had at that time, which ended up on the student deferring. Now, this is quite fascinating, right? Because this doesn't happen quite often. And based on my experience, universities and tertiary educations are actually quite supportive to students. But it puts it into perspective that we still have this out there. In social media, for instance, individuals with lived experience of mental illness find it very difficult to speak out in social media. For instance, there was a person that attempted to talk about taking their own life, but they were met by attacks from other individuals in social media, yet they developed this reluctant feeling to share. In terms of relationships as well, individuals with lived experience of mental illness highlighted that one of the major factors influencing their recovery is the building a healthy relationship with others. But there is a problem, you see. There's a lack of official resources directed to the loved ones of that person, family and carers, to essentially make them understand what's going on in their life, or how to look after them, how to potentially talk to them, or care for them, which finds the person with lived experience finds it very difficult to be understood and supported. And you see, the official documentation of stigma is quite vast. You type stigma out there in your favorite search bar and you actually find there is a lot of information regarding this. There's a lot of movement. But as you try to potentially filter through some of this information, it, it actually is very generalistic. A lot of the times, resources about stigma is all about how do we make ourselves better? It doesn't target the problems that we previously discussed, right? But moving along from society, not looking at the workplace, the American Psychiatric Association has had another study that evaluated that one in five workers feel comfortable about talking about mental health. 
And if you remember from my initial episode, we talked about this a bit, a bit as well. And in Australia, they felt that 70% of workers were actually willing to be talking about mental health, yet half of them felt supportive, right? Now, in this American study, two out of four colleagues felt actually the need to help this the trouble collect, yet one of those two felt that they were unable to assist them because they didn't have enough resources and skill to help them. And the EAP is something that is commonly discussed out there. An EAP, for the people that don't know, is essentially prog is a program that is directed to employers um, to essentially pass on to their employees and is essentially counselling that assists them with dealing with the workplace stresses, issues affecting mental health, emotional well-being and family issues and so on. However, despite the encouragement for these EAP program to be used, they are still highly underutilized. Um, one piece of evidence said to me that apparently 5 to 10% is actually what is actually utilized out there. And this puts it quite in an interesting point, right? Because the resource is there, yet we're not using it. For what I heard in my clinical experience is when EAP is actually promoted, this is a phone service sometimes, well, majority of the time it is, and it's actually sometimes actually quite difficult to get into. There's a waiting period and it can only assist you for like four sessions and the remainder sessions you have to pay for them. So if you're having a quite difficult time at work, they only expect you to get better from first sessions. And the remainder you have to spend your own money to get better. But let's not discuss that further. Let's move along to the next one. And that is personal factors can also affect on how we develop stigmatizing views towards people with mental illness. Our bringing in the way that we grew up, our understanding of mental health and also cultural and spirituality views can affect into how we develop these stigmatizing views. And obviously, when you compare somebody that was born in a first world country compared to another individual that was born overseas, we can state that those two individuals will have very different views in relation to mental health. Now, moving forward to the special population, and this is something that I wanted to touch based on, because we're going to be talking about this one in another episode. but. We need to touch based on this. LGBTI plus community are actually a quite special population in terms of stigma. And that is majority of their lifetime, these individuals essentially feel stigmatized. A majority of that is simply because of the nature of being part of the community being lesbian, being gay, bisexual, transgender, etc. People struggle through their identity majority of their lifetime. And due to being different, society puts stigmatizing views towards them. Sometimes religion, sometimes cultural as well affects this. And now 
if you remember from the very first episode, we talked about how these individuals are actually at risk of developing mental health problems. Now, you have a bit of a double problem now. When somebody would inherently stigmatize and abuse them themselves, now tend to develop mental health problems that puts even more pressure and more stigma upon themselves. But this is to be discussed later on. Now, people from culturally diverse background, as we discussed previously in the personal factors of developing stigma, is actually quite interesting view on this. People from Asian countries, not often, but sometimes, can have particular stigmatizing views towards mental health. And they feel that this is a family business, sometimes. They feel that this is nothing to be discussed about out there. And we should hide it. We should be ashamed of this. And this obviously plays a factor of how we develop stigma during our lives. Because if we grew up in this particular environment, we inherently gather views. Now, for individuals from non-speaking English background, for instance, looking at a more Australian view, a lot of the times they don't reach out for help. And you wonder why. Obviously, there's multiple reasons. One of them is there's a monetary factor when it comes to mental health that is actually quite expensive. And a lot of the times these individuals do not have the fund to help them with this. But also, those stigmatizing views that we talked about it before further restrict them from getting the help they actually need. And this is the problem, you see. Individuals from non-English speaking background are more at risk of having complicated problems with mental health. And we'll talk about specifics and all of the rest of it later on in that separate episode, but I wanted to discuss that a little bit. Now, Aboriginal Stories Strait Islander population is another one that I wanted to talk about. And that is, there's still a health disparity. We have to highlight that and we have to understand that there's a health disparity at this moment in time with the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander population. But we're obviously doing a lot in terms of closing the gap. There's a lot of movements out there and a lot of government-initiated movements and other non-governmental organizations in terms of reducing the health disparity out there. But the statistics still shows there's a high degree on this. Yet we're actually quite improving in this sense. You see, back in the day, Aboriginal tertiary Islander people will avoid coming into hospital talking about personal matters. But as we became better into understanding their culture, but also being welcoming and acknowledging their loss, they had been more willing to talk to us. And being a mental health clinician, this is actually quite fascinating because when I started working as a quite junior clinician, when I had somebody from an Aboriginal Service Red Islander population, I was initially quite scared. And that is, I didn't want to say the wrong thing because I didn't want to harm their trust. But a lot of the times, 
and this is what one person told me. You treat me with respect, and I will treat you with respect. And that's how we're gonna get along. And that played a very interesting factor and turn point in my career. Because at the end of the day, if we treat another human being like the way we want to be treated, we are already breaking that barrier on stigma. But moving along, how stigma actually affects individuals with mental illness? There's obviously multiple ways on how this can affect someone's life, but in a personal perspective, stigma can increase the feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness and suicidality, which leads to the individual with living experience of mental illness to have decreased opportunities in finding a job, an increased level of difficulty when maintaining relationships with friends, family and romantic partners, but also it plays a factor about the quality of life. Now, looking at a societal perspective, stigma can lead to negative discriminatory behaviours such as avoiding these individuals with living experience of mental illness, exclude them and annihilate them, because we want to avoid the risk. And that is that stigmatising point that I made earlier, that people with mental illness are dangerous, incompetent and to blame, is what actually people believe out there. But we'll talk how we can make this better, very soon. Now, moving along to stigma in healthcare, a recent journal article evaluated the stigma initiatives in Australia, and it concluded that from over around 80 initiatives, there was a need to increase initiatives towards the specialist population that we spoke about about before, and that is the LGBTI, the people with culturally diverse background, and individuals with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Now, the National Stigma Card, which is an Australian study that is quite worth leading in the way that they're producing evidence out there, is actually trying to break down how stigma actually affects individuals out there. And we quoted some of these before, and in relation to the news, the education relationship, but now we're looking in a more healthcare perspective. Now, healthcare in general, stigma still ever presents out there. Individuals with mental illness, when they go and present health to hospital for their physical health problems, they feel that the mental health condition labels them as being difficult to care for or as being complex. And a lot of the times that can get in the way of them getting physical health care. And that puts it into a quite relatively difficult position, right? Because the chief concern wasn't for them to come in and get assessed for mental health problems. The chief concern was there to come in and get whatever they developed, physical health-wise, fixed. And this is what the evidence and also the clinical practice have shown. 
the people out there with living experience with the present to hospital, they still feel stigmatized. But stigma doesn't just stop there. Stigma also develops on mental health wards. I'm not gonna say all of them, because let's be honest, not all of them are the same. But some of them can be improved. For instance, there was an example in the paper that mentioned that individuals with borderline personality disorder are actually sometimes denied the care they actually need. While others believe that avoiding care is better as they feel traumatized from the psychiatric care they receive. Now, that's actually quite confronting. Let's break it down a little. Now, individuals with borderline personality disorder, when you look after them, it's a little bit of a balancing act. And that is, sometimes when you provide the care they need, they can actually get sicker. When you provide that hospital admission that they so want, they can sometimes lead them to become more unwell than they actually arrive. And this is due to the complexity of this. But the problem with this is, this is one of the most stigmatizing things to have up there. And that is that people with borderline personality disorder are often very discriminated against. They feel that by just having the label, people already make the assumption that they're difficult. And that is not quite the case, you see. Consistency is something that is really what they need. Consistency and being communicated and careful is truly what they essentially need to get better. But obviously this person that reported this on this study didn't feel that. And I can speak to the truth that hospitals out there don't just simply deny people's care, we actually provide them with a better plan. We recognize that potentially coming into hospital might not be what they need and potentially what they actually need is to stay outside at home with their loved ones and being supported in the community from other mental health clinicians. But the problem that arises from this is when this is often not communicated or when the patient is not involved in this conversation, they feel that they're not being looked after. So the basis on this is that as much as we do our best job, if we don't involve the poor soul in this, they, they what's the purpose? Now, in relation to why people avoid care because they feel traumatized in relation to the psych psychiatric care, is that Sometimes, in order to make people better, you have to do things that they don't like. And that is giving them a medication that they don't, might not want to take. And they can be in denial due to the complexity of their mental illness at that time. And sometimes you have to do very uncomfortable decisions into, within respecting their human rights, managing to give them this medication one way or another. Now, 
What we discussed previously in relation to how stigma relates to healthcare is actually quite truthful. Is how it ha is happening out there. But the reason why this still occurs, because we're not a perfect world, is that the recent deinstitutionalization from the late 1950s as psychiatric care moved away from institutions and more towards the community, we still got a long way to go from this. And practices from the olden ages, as so they call it, they are no longer used anymore. And whatever is being used is being replaced with a more collaborative, trauma-informed and recovery-orientated care. And this is unfortunately a little bit of a teething problem, what we highlighted before. But now, sure, it's a matter of time for stigma to get better. But what can we do about it now? And the thing is, you have already made the very first step into improving stigma or reducing the amount of stigma that is attached to this topic and you are actually already gaining an understanding of mental health conditions or you are open for the idea that essentially would reduce your dis discriminatory abuse that you already inherently might have but you might not even realize. You see, literature mentions that knowing someone with a living experience of mental illness assists in the reduction of stigma. And as we highlighted in the very first introductory episode, this literature out there highlights that there is a lot of people out there with potentially mental health problems, and you might not even realize. Two out of four Australians are at risk of depression, and then four out of four experience some depression at least once in their life. And this puts it into perspective that mental health does not discriminate. Now, we need to start developing the idea that not everything that we believe out there and that we read and that we hear of is truth. We should actually go along and develop our own search so we can make an informed decision into what perspective to develop and hopefully they're not stigmatizing. Focusing on more governmental organizations or mental health organizations in relation to stigma might be more beneficial than looking at some other literature. Now, talking about this to your mental health practitioner or your healthcare practitioner can also assist in reducing the stigmatizing abuse. But if you feel that something out there posted that is not really sitting well with you, this could be reported to an Australian organization called Stigma Watch, and this job is to essentially take that away. But this is something that I wanted to talk about, and that is, if you're interested to learn about mental health, there is a course called Mental Health First Date, and it's run by multiple organizations out there in a relatively affordable price that can be an adjunct to your regular physical first aid. It's very inexpensive and it, it assists into you not being that two out of four colleagues that felt that they couldn't help the trouble collect 
or that one out of four that felt that they didn't have the resources to help the colleague because it will equip you with the basic skills to recognize when somebody's going through a tough time, but also how to assist them. And you see, this is sometimes even funded by the, your workplace. So you're more than welcome to talk this to your employer. But that brings us to our conclusion. And I want to thank you for listening along to one of the most complicated topics to talk about in mental health. From this particular podcast, you should be able to start to have an understanding of what stigma is and how this affects individuals with lived experience of mental illness. But we talked about also how stigma presents in society, workplace and healthcare, then we attempted to deconstruct the reasons why this is so relevant. We also talked about the possible ways on how we can tackle this and improve this out there. But again, again, we will talk about the specialist population later on. And the next episode will be a little bit light. We'll talk about sleep, something that is quite basic, yet can also be quite complicated to understand. But if you like to feel informed in the latest on the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred platform. And once again, thank you for your valuable time because without you, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing right now.